Hello and welcome in to All In with Adam, episode 12. This is some, some sketchy territory we're going in today. Um, I wrestled with this one. I wrestled with whether or not I wanted to do this episode because there was a period in, in time, many years ago, where the collection of stories and some of the insights about this particular drug we're talking about today, methalone, you know, I, I thought that this warranted a book. I thought that I could write a book themed around this drug and some of the experiences that I've had with it, but I don't think I'm going to write that book. You know, it's, it's been so long, I'm so far removed from my time and my experience with this drug that I really don't think I'm going to do that. So my goal today is really just to tell you about, I suppose, a drug that, that you know, in researching for this podcast, I've learned that it's really misunderstood. It's, it's incorrectly categorized as bath salts a lot of times, not what it is. Um, it, it, this drug is a, I would describe it as a cousin of MDMA or a cousin of ecstasy. It's in that family, but it's very unique in a lot of ways. And I would say, you know, I suppose <laughs> the drugs that I have the most experience with, alcohol would probably be the number one. I would guess weed would be number two. And number three would probably be methalone. And that's that's saying a lot given that I haven't done or even seen that drug in almost a decade. That's how long ago uh, it was when I had um, my experience with this drug. So I took this drug for about an entire year. And I, I don't mean I was on it completely for an entire year. Um, I was never addicted to this drug, but it was, I would say, an average of three times a week for about a year. Um, of course, there were times where there were one or two weeks of total abstinence from it. There were other times when it was you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday sort of thing, getting into that that bender binge sort of territory. Um, so it was definitely a mix, but I would say I averaged uh, about three times a week um, for, yeah, for about an entire year. So I've got a lot of experience with this drug. And it's a drug a lot of people are completely unfamiliar with. So first, let me start by telling you a little bit about MDMA, because I don't do a podcast like this under the impression that a lot of people are familiar with the drugs that I'm talking about. Um, I mean, we kicked off this this entire project that is this podcast with a mushroom trip report, basically. So, you know, I do feel the need to, to somewhat qualify still some of these drugs. Like, in case you don't know anything about this, let me set it up for you so you, um, you kind of understand. So, MDMA is sort of the the flagship empathogen drug, right? It, it's, it works primarily with serotonin, and it's the love drug. If you could imagine that the love that you feel, the sense of contentment with the world, the, the feeling of joy, not happiness, that's a, that's a little more dopamine surface level cocaine territory, but like genuine true contentment with who you are, and a deep sense of empathy for those around you, just connectivity to the world. That's mostly serotonin. And serotonin normally operates kind of like a leaky faucet, like it just drips all the time, that's how it's supposed to work. MDMA basically breaks the fucking faucet open, right? So your mind is completely, your brain is flooded with the neurotransmitter that is serotonin. And that experience is, is very, very powerful. It is by all means, what I would describe as a heavy drug. It's a serious drug. Um, it, it's quite an experience. And it's not its not entirely safe, I, I guess you could say. I mean, certainly you could have a, um, like a drug-induced psychosis from MDMA. There's also serotonin syndrome, which normally happens from abusing that drug. But when done 
you know, with proper dosages and enough time in between your, you know, the events where you actually take this drug, um, when done appropriately, it's really quite safe. It's just, it's so awesome that the potential for abuse is very high if somebody is not experienced. But my favorite thing about MDMA, which keep in mind, is not the drug we're talking about today. I'm just setting it up here. Um, my favorite thing about MDMA is sort of the backstory of why it was invented. There's somewhat of a philosophy that goes in, that, that comes with MDMA. And so when soldiers were coming back from wars, um, let's go, you know, MDMA was really first discovered in like 1912, but it was popularized in the 70s because a lot of soldiers were coming back from wars and they were, they, they, they were what they called shell-shocked at the time, but it's PTSD, right? I mean, you watch a lot of your friends die, more than likely you're going to have some psychological issues to work through. And now we, we've got a much better grasp on what that looks like and how to treat it. But at the time, it was sort of this, this very misunderstood idea of, you know, how is it that someone can have one, one particular event, which may have only lasted 10 seconds? How long does it take to, to see your, your friend get shot? You know, it, it's, it's a pretty isolated event. It's not like you were necessarily tortured over several days. It's a very isolated event. But people would see or experience things like this, maybe numerous things like that. And it would have a residual impact on every day that followed, right? And you, you could apply this to, um, let's just say, someone who was the victim of, of, of sexual abuse. That could have been a very short, isolated event that happened one time. But the residual effect, you know, it lasts. It can impact every day of their life after that happens. And so in trying to understand this, the psychology world said, well, what if the opposite premise could be true? What if you could have a single isolated event that was so overwhelmingly positive that it had that same residual effect on every day following that event, but it was positive, right? Is, is, that, is that kind of thing possible? So on this idea that we could create chemically that overwhelmingly positive event to have a residual effect. That was sort of the premise on which MDMA was invented, and it began, um, you know, it gained a lot of popularity in the the psychology world, mostly for talk therapy in the 70s. But by the 80s, the black market stole it. They named it ecstasy, and you know, <laughs> through the 80s and 90s, it was very popular as a street drug until eventually the rave community sort of adopted it, and that's a little bit more underground now. Now, my interest in MDMA was never from raves. I have never once been to what I would describe as a rave or a club, like a Molly club. I've never been to those places and thought it was cool. I always thought this was a weird-ass way to do drugs with glow sticks and sweaty dancing, and it just, I, I never really understood that. I mean, I guess I understand it. It's just a, a way to experience that drug, but it was never... It never appealed to me at all. Zero magnetism to that entire community of people. You know, I live within several miles of a, a large um, fairground here in Florida, and many times there would be large, um, like, touring, eat, like, EDM festivals that would come through. Electric Daisy Carnival, EDC, I think that was one of them. Yeah, I can hear it from my house. It's, like, several miles away, but it's that loud. And I had tons of friends that would go there and roll, and they have all sorts of different... Just e-pills, basically. But, you know, for me, my experience with pure MDMA was always uh, much more introspective. Really, it's a lot how my relationship to psychedelics in general is. Um, you know, mushrooms and acid and things like that. 
you know, the plan is to be deeply introspective. The plan is to be home in a safe environment um, where I feel I feel very sensitive. I feel very vulnerable. Well, vulnerable is the wrong word, but sensitive to what I could learn from the drug. I'm not just seeking a good time necessarily. I have other drugs that I put in that category of pure recreation, but MDMA was never really like that. It was never pure recreation. So the way MDMA feel, feels, by the way, the reason I'm, I'm going so hard on MDMA is because if you don't know what MDMA is, like ecstasy specifically, describing its cousin might be even more confusing. So I'm starting with what I describe as the, um, it's sort of like the older cousin to it, which is MDMA. It's also a lot older and a lot, lot more thoroughly researched. The way an MDMA experience is for me, depending on whether or not it's pure, because it's very common that e-pills have other drugs pressed into them. And the reason for that is because a pure MDMA high, that kind of, or roll is what you would call it, uh, a real MDMA roll is particularly heavy. Like you can almost fall asleep. There's a real lack of energy there, especially just physically, right? Your mind might be wide awake, but your your body is just absolutely melted. So it's not really conducive to partying, especially if you wanted to get into like the whole rave thing, which I do not. But if you did, you would need some sort of <laughs> something to help you keep your energy up, right? So it's relatively common that e-pills will uh, come with a little bit of methamphetamine pressed inside of them or some other stimulant of some kind that's orally digestible, right? And so for that reason, it's extremely important that you always test your e-pill, always, always. If you're ever going to buy a pill under the name of Molly or Ecstasy and it's it's like branded with a theme like a Superman or a Snapchat or a Lego or a Game Boy or whatever bullshit, they're <laughs> whatever bullshit shapes and colors they're coming up with, um, it, testing is extremely important because I cannot tell you the amount of times that I have tested pills um, and they've come back with all sorts of weird shit in it, including fentanyl, found those and threw them away. So you have to make sure that you're testing those pills. But if you do happen to find pure MDMA, like in a crystal form, yeah, that would be ideal, but the experience is not particularly energetic. It, it You could do the whole four to six hour experience laying on a couch. You absolutely could. And what it feels like, it feels like you turn into this puddle of love. That's probably the best description I could come up with. You are deeply empathetic to everything. Now you might lack a little bit of articulation like in your ability to express your empathy or you might just feel so lazy that you don't really wanna talk. But th there's a sense of connectivity that you have to other people, other people that are, that are around you that is very, very hard to describe. It, it's like feeling all of the love in the world at once because remember, chemically, you have opened up the faucet um, for that chemical drip that is serotonin. But as amazing as the MDMA experience is, one of my gripes with that drug was always the lack of energy. The few times that I had rolled, you know, before I discovered what methylone was, you know, it, 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 you could be social, but you could also just like lay in a hammock the whole time, right? And just like soak up the sun, you know, it, it was, there was a, a real lack of energy and that always bugged me. It made it a little bit less fun. I wanted to be social, but also I can't move, dude. <laughs> like it, it was a lot of that, right? So when methylone first came around, this was in a particular friends group I was in and it was introduced to us as Molly. But the catch is Molly is a slang term. Molly really doesn't mean anything. I think it's supposed to mean ecstasy. Ecstasy is another slang term. It's supposed to mean MDMA, but 
we're way past that point. Molly just means a feel-good drug that you take in a club. That's really as, about as firm of a description as you should ever you should ever assume might apply to something someone sells you and they, they call it Molly. Yeah, Molly could be literally anything. But what we were getting came in a crystal form. And that's always ideal because it's a lot easier to test and you can clearly see what you have as opposed to a pressed pill where you have no idea what actually has been put into this concoction of powders that they pressed into a pill. So, you know, I was grateful for that. But in getting these, this, this crystal powder, it's like a translucent crystal and it was always one of two colors. It was either pink, it looks exactly like Himalayan salt if it's pink. You ever seen the pink salt chunks uh, inside of the grocery store? That's exactly what it looked like. Or it was tan, it looked exactly the same though, just like chunky salt. It was dusty and very easy to break. So if you were to take like, I don't know, even even like your fingers, you could just snap the crystals. It was not um, not very dense at all, very, very, very light, like very brittle. We would get this powder, um, and there are one of two ways that you can take it. Uh, the first way that, that almost everybody takes it is uh, inside of a capsule. So you have a little clear capsule, and you would put the, the shards, right? You would weigh out a certain dose. A dose is um, 0.2 grams. That would be a starting dose, right? So on a scale, it would read 0.2. And you would put that inside of a capsule and then just take the capsule, and that was considered one dose. Um, that's what I did for my very first one. Yeah, I guess let's just start there. So my very first experience, I was at my own house, not this house, this was many years ago, but uh, there was a, a small party of 15 or 20 people, and um, a buddy of mine said, hey, try this, and described it as Molly and nothing else, but I thought it was very interesting that it was a clear capsule with, a, with an obvious little pink shard of glass inside of it, right? That was interesting to me, and that seemed objectively a little bit safer than taking uh, an e-pill, which I knew could have a variety of different substances in it, and I didn't have test kits at the time. So... I took, uh, I took this little capsule with the pink shard in it. Now, this specific drug was methalone, but I would be lying if I said I knew that at the time. I actually didn't find out what this drug was until I had taken it many, many, many more times. I just described it as Molly. But there was not a lot of information on the internet or really anywhere about the variations of MDMA, these weird cousins of MDMA. Um, and we didn't really know which one we had at the time. We found out much later. But... So I took, uh, I took my first dose of methalone, um, 0.2 in a capsule, little pink shard, and within 30 or 40 minutes, the first effects started to kick in. So for me, the very first effects that I felt, uh, I smoked cigarettes at the time, and my cigarette felt, it felt like it went from like a cigar, like fat feeling, to like a Sharpie, then to a cigarette, and as I'm rolling it in my hand, by, after a minute or so, it felt like a needle. It felt unbelievably tiny. It felt like I was massive and the cigarette was like as small as a needle. And so that like tactile feeling reminded me of acid. That was the only other drug that gave me that sort of thing where certain textures or, or certain textures were off, right? So like you would feel leather and it would feel wet or you would feel concrete and it felt like metal, or you would feel drywall and it felt like fabric. Like, like a lot of the tactile sensory stuff was, was mixed up. And so that definitely happens a little bit on methalone. Um, so that was the very first thing that I ever felt. And I knew that this was an interesting drug. And then the, the rolling waves of empathy began to come up. I remember the first conversation that I had on it was with a girl who I didn't really know 
you know, maybe I had met her a couple times. Nice girl. And we found out that one of my ex's parents also knew her. Like, she was friends with, with an ex of mine from, like, 15 years ago when everybody was in middle school or high school or something. Um, and she happened to know this same set of parents. And just because of that weird thing we had in common, which normally you, if you discovered that about somebody you know, you'd be like, damn, really cool, we know the same people. That's about as far as that conversation goes. But by the end of that conversation, we were talking, she was also also on Medellin. You know, we were like, we thought we were brother and sister, right? I mean, it's just like, I can't believe you know them and you've been to that house. And like the, the level of connectivity is just over the top, you know? And it's interesting because it does in some way act like a truth serum. It's not it's not as bullshitty as cocaine is. Cocaine certainly, you know, a whole lot of fake businesses been started while people are on cocaine. Like you get dumb ideas that are not realistic. You don't actually believe this stuff, but for some reason when your dopamine levels are 100x what they're supposed to be, you can kind of like bullshit with yourself and with somebody else and have this this relatively meaningless conversation that isn't really in alliance with any version of truth. But methalone and really MDMA, they're not really like that. They do align you with some version of truth. And really, I would say alcohol does that as well. It Alcohol lowers your inhibition so that the delivery and the output and the expression of a drunk person is very sloppy and inarticulate. But... A lot of times when people get drunk, they will say what they truly mean, right? It acts as somewhat of a truth serum. And methalone and MDMA as well are very, very much like that. So there's a little sprinkle of like the cocaine style bullshittiness with it, but you do mean what you say a lot of times. You <laughs> you, uh, you might be feeling things to a degree that is uh, a little ridiculous, but as, when it's not with strangers, when it's with your actual friends, these empathetic surges are so real, and I've got several stories that will sort of illustrate what that looks like. Now, before we get any further, I suppose I should wrap up the initial overview or description of what this drug, what it's actually doing, but keep in mind, I didn't really know at the time um, what, what it was supposed to be doing. So it is effectively like an amphetamine hybrid with an empathogen. So it is like a weird cousin of methamphetamine and MDMA, right? So you get all of the empathetic feelings of MDMA, maybe not quite with the level of intensity as a full MDMA role, but certainly similar, very, very similar, deeply empathetic, just rolling with like an overwhelming positivity, a, a sense of contentment, deep-seated joy, not dopamine front-end happiness, but like true, like I love who I am and my place in the world and I love my friends. Um, deep, deep swells of gratitude that you just can't help but feel. But it's not sluggish like MDMA. You're not, you're not a puddle, you know, you are, you are highly mobile. And I suppose that would be one, one of the downsides is that the amphetamine quality, methamphetamine specifically is not a drug that I've done, though I have experience with Adderall and other things in the amphetamine category, um, but one of the things I don't like about, about amphetamines is sort of the, it's hyper-focused like to your detriment at a certain point, right? Like you get so unbelievably focused on a specific thing that you really, you end up sucking, you suck at multitasking, right? You can't do anything else. And if you try to, you get very scatterbrained. It sort of has the opposite effect where you feel very focused, 
but really you're not at all. So methylone kinda has that quality to it. If you're doing one thing, you will do an excellent job at that one thing, and you can do it for hours and hours. But if you were to try and do three or four things at once, like like mentally juggling a couple of tasks or ideas or topics, nothing gets done. It all falls apart, right? So it has this like highly specialized quality to it where you just gotta pick a thing and do it, and that's the thing we're doing. Otherwise, the night turns very, uh, just scattered, you know, very, very scattered. But to have all of that empathy, all of that joy, all of that connectivity, you know, with energy, with a desire to talk, a desire to engage, a desire to to physically move, man, that was probably the coolest thing about it, right? Because I had never experienced that, the depth of joy and connectivity and empathy. I had never experienced that. Uh, where I wasn't in a puddle on the couch, right? That was the only way I had ever felt it. And in many ways, I think, you know, there's a lot of e-pills, ecstasy pills, that are that are designed and produced with drugs like methamphetamine added into them because they're trying to replicate an experience like this. They're trying to give you all of the empathetic, you know, the, the empathogen qualities of a drug. They're trying to give you all of those love drug qualities, but also keep you awake at the same time. And for me... Methalone did that. Now, it is interesting because not everybody has the same experience on methalone. There were definitely some people who had what I would describe as like an inverse experience to me. Yeah, I should probably qualify this podcast by saying that you, your experience may vary. It may vary. Now, I will say that nine out of 10 people seem to have the same reaction, at least in my experience, you know, Almost all of us had very similar experiences on this drug, everyone in the friends group. But there were times, um, there was one time in particular, a guy came through, friend of a friend situation, we didn't know him, he wasn't in our friends group, and he took it for the first time. And he did have experience with drugs, he wasn't really scared to take the drug, um, but he had he had a reaction that was very peculiar. He got very quiet, very calm, very tired, like insanely mellow. And I think this is something along the lines of like, when somebody gets prescribed Adderall, who actually has like attention deficit disorder, you know, they they tend to not experience what everybody else does, right? They get very focused, very calm, and it sort of brings their behavior back to like a normal baseline. But it's only because they are, you know, so hyperactive mentally before they take the drug. That's their natural state, is very hyperactive. So I think that can be a variable sometimes, because um, there were definitely a couple people who experienced like a sense of peace and calm and quiet. And that's not really how I, I would describe it. Not a, not a calm drug at all. But there were also, there, were, <laughs> there was one other story, I can't say this guy's name, but a guy who I went to high school with, who I, I knew well in high school, but I didn't know him that well like as an adult. And one time I took a trip back to my hometown, brought some of meth, I brought some methylone with me, and me and a group of friends took it. Well, four out of the five friends had the same experience I did. Energetic, highly empathetic, having a blast, you know, um, moving around, like bar hopping is a really fun thing to do. You just wanna move. Or even just going for walks around the neighborhood is fun. It's just, it's action oriented, you know? So you're talking, you're moving, you're thinking, it's very busy. But this one particular friend, again, just one out of the five people taking it, he, God, this is such a weird story. I, don't, I wish there was more information on what would make somebody behave this way. 
he got mean. But mean, and he wouldn't admit that he was being mean. It was so peculiar. So you would ask him, are you having a good time? Are you having fun? And he would say, yeah, man, having a great time, feeling awesome, incredible. And then you would go, you know, you say, hey, you want to maybe, maybe we'll uh, you go for a walk around the neighborhood? He would say, that's a stupid fucking idea. Fuck that. I'm not going on a fucking walk around the neighborhood. Like, whoa, like you said six seconds ago, you were doing great, feeling good. And like, but his attitude didn't match what he said he felt. It was so peculiar. And so in hindsight, you know, I really don't know if he was on antipsychotics, antidepressants, if he had ever been diagnosed with any type of mental disorder from, you know, severe depression to bipolar disorder to any type of behavioral problem. I have no idea. He certainly didn't tell us any of that, if there was a problem there, but it was really peculiar. So those are two examples of when I've seen people have different reactions to this that don't match mine. But I will say that, again, you know, 90% of people who I've seen take this have the same reaction um, that, that I did, which is this weird, beautiful hybrid between methamphetamine and, uh, and MDMA. So it's all the love in the world, all the just liquid joy, deep sense of empathy, love, and connectivity, um, and then combine that with a, we should probably talk a little bit about methamphetamine as well to sort of paint the full picture here. The, met, the amphetamine side of this drug comes with a few, a few things that I was not used to that I've never experienced from any other drug before. So energy is the easy one, right? It is very energetic. You, you do, you, uh, you don't get tired. You don't need any type of fuel, like you're not interested in drinking water, in eating, you're just running on on chemical energy, right? And, and it feels endless. You could just do anything and never get tired, never wear out. So that's definitely an amphetamine type quality. But more than that, it comes with this very peculiar confidence. You are so sure of yourself that something about your level of confidence is discernible by other people. And I say this having been single at the time. Kelly's heard all of these stories, but you know, it was pretty common that we would go to bars, not really to drink. You could drink on it, but but I never drink on it. But a lot of people, all of my friends, said that you really don't feel the alcohol. You could have one beer or ten, and you really couldn't tell. Certainly not a good idea to throw alcohol on top of any type of drug, especially if it's not doing anything. It just seems silly. But you know, socially, people would have, would have a beer or two with it. So we would commonly go to bars, and I had a great time at bars just because it it's hypersocial, even not drinking. I don't really care. It's just fun being around a lot of people and in an environment where you can talk. That's what makes it a little different from like the rave environment. Nobody's talking or having conversations, but in bars, you, you can interact with people, and those conversations were incredibly fun. And so most of the guys in this particular group were single, and... In talking to girls at bars, without an agenda, keep in mind, it's not like we're trying to bring home girls to to hook up with. I mean, you're almost, you're not even interested in that particularly on this drug. It's more just the social element and the fun element of connecting with other people. Just as fun to talk to a guy you don't know, right? It wasn't necessarily sexual. But in talking with, with a girl who you don't know, you could objectively say that this girl is very attractive. And normally, I know that you would experience some kind of nerves just walking up to this like pretty girl in a bar and starting a conversation. Not necessarily the easiest thing in the world to do for most guys, right? 
especially like a cold entry. You're not introduced to them. You just walk up and strike up a conversation. But there is absolutely no doubt in your mind when you're on methalone that this is going to go fine. This is going to go perfect. There's nothing to be weird about. And when you truly believe that, like on a neurological level, you know, when your confidence is so high and you believe that, that that belief is discernible to those around you. So in a weird way, you not only behave differently, but people react to you differently because you're just like exuding this this like aroma of confidence. It's very, very weird, but you can notably see people react differently. You know, and, and you could chalk all of this up to like, I guess, body language, maybe like pheromones if you wanted to get real nerdy about it, but I really don't know other than to say that it's like your personal belief manifesting itself through a variety of different contexts, whether that be body language, the tone of your voice, pheromones, or some other indiscernible mystical quality. Like other people respond very differently to you when you truly have a level of confidence that you've never had before, right? And so one of the ways we would, I guess, like test this theory, Joe Hajin and I briefly talked about it in his episode, but, you know, we would... We would see how little we could get away with in order to get a girl's phone number. And this progressed from, the first way that we did it was just walking up to girls and saying, can I have your phone number? And absolutely nothing else. And that weirdly worked. Like more than half the time that worked. And the weird thing is, I should say, when it didn't work, when you walked up to that pretty girl in the bar and said a random thing, even if you had all the confidence in the world, of course there are some people that are just like, I don't fucking know, you get away from me. And if that happened... You were so completely unbothered by that that it was just like, okay, have a good night. Like, and you, ne- you never think about it again. It doesn't even make a, the slightest dent in your ego, which is kind of nice because in theory, wouldn't it be awesome to be that way? Wouldn't it be so awesome to have no second thoughts about how you present yourself to other people? And if somebody, whether randomly or even regularly, just rejected you, even if it's non-sexual, just meeting people out in general. If you said, hey, man, my name is this. Nice to meet you. If someone said, hey, man, I don't really know you like that. Okay. You know, the ability to walk away and not have your ego even dinged by an interaction like that, that's very desirable. So it was cool. It was cool. It allowed you to take more swings at meeting people or meeting girls, if that's what you were interested in doing. A bunch of single guys in their early 20s. You know, of course, that's what we were interested in. So... This uh, this phone number thing, it progressed to the point where we wondered if the look on our face and our body language alone could convince <laughs> could convince girls to put our phone number their phone number in our phone. So we would open our phone to the dial screen, just like a keypad, and eventually became just handing that phone to girls that we didn't know and not saying anything, and seeing if they would type the number, and yes, it actually worked. Sure, sure it didn't work that often, but that actually worked. It's weird, man, it's weird. I'll give you one other story that belongs to a, a friend of mine whose name I won't, I won't say. I've gotta be real respectful with a drug like this, but um, he lives out of state, and he flew down here one time for some work trip, and he was hanging out with us for the weekend. And this guy is, is you know, good socially, but I would I would describe him more similar to me. He's he's ultimately like an introvert. He's not going to start conversations with people out in public, anything like that. But he uh, he took methadone with us. It was his first and only time doing it, and he had the classic response of all that deep empathy, 
with an overwhelming sense of confidence, no social inhibitions whatsoever. But when he took it, you know, his flight was within a couple hours, so he knew that he was going to be on methalone flying home. Well, that proved to be very interesting because he actually got bumped up to first class. And when he got bumped up to first class, he called me when he landed on this flight to tell me this story. He said that he was so full of energy and so social that he made best friends with the person sitting next to him. I don't remember if that was a guy or a girl, but like best friends. They had a few drinks. You know, you're really, money is like not a thing on on methalone, so you'll spend some money. So he's buying drinks for this guy. Then they sort of invite the other guy from across the aisle to join in on their conversation, buy him a drink too. And this turns into a, like basically a, a party that he's at the center of where everyone in first class is like spinning around in their seats with drinks, telling stories, having a good time. And he is telling stories that are making people like roll with laughter in first class. It was like his social skills were so high. He was so genuine, so believable, so confident, so charismatic that he like manipulated the environment of this first class part of the plane around him where he created the party without even trying, right? This is the kind of shit that happens on methalone. It is so hard to explain unless you've experienced it. And this was something that that we all kind of experience to a degree. If you're around people that aren't on it, you will, without even attempting to do so, you will be the captain of this conversation, right? Like you will dictate the vibe, right? You're the source of energy. You're the source of confidence. You make everyone else feel more comfortable because of your level of comfort. It is weird, man. It's really weird. So most of the nights that we did this, you know, we definitely pushed it pretty far, pretty far. And I say that like on a night by night basis. So let's say that you take it at 5 p.m. You know, more than likely we, we would go until... 6, 7, 8 a.m. the next day. You get about 12 hours, uh, not off of a single dose, but 12 hours, including your redoses, where, you know, you can still get an effect from it. One of the things I like about that drug is that it's kind of self-limiting. Methalone tends to stop working at a certain point when you're redosing. You can feel the effects, but it's nothing like it was on your first or second or third dose. So it eventually just gets to a point where you're just, you're done. You're done because the drug said that you're done, right? Kind of nice to have that built into the experience itself. Now, redosing is not something that's highly recommended. In hindsight, we were redosing as much as five or six times. Uh, that's a bad idea. It's really a bad idea just because of the neurotoxicity, right? It's just not good for your brain to just, you know, milk the serotonin out of your mind until it's totally dry. But we did that a lot, did it a lot. So at a certain point after taking it, um, I began insufflating it, which is, you know, the correct term for for snorting, break it into a very fine powder, um, and then you would you would snort it, and very small amounts, nowhere near like a point two, like how much you would take. You needed way 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 less of the drug. It was also much faster acting, kicked in a lot faster, and it was it was, I don't want to say more intense, but like it it hits different. It's it's very very different, more of like a of a dopamine style feeling, right? Like it's a little bit more front end, not as deep seated. Because sometimes when you take it, just like MDMA, there's like a, I don't know, there's like a very slow 
sluggish like background quality to it where it's not so obvious that you're on it and there's more of like a rushy front end nature uh, more of like a presence to the drug when it's insufflated so that became how I preferred to do it and again you would actually need less of it so the drug went a little bit further now from the time that you actually snorted a line of methylone until the effects were totally gone I'd say in the ballpark of three to four hours and then you would you would just redose from there you would just do another one and then that that window of time uh, where the, the drug's efficacy it gets shorter and shorter so your next redose you might only have two hours the third redose maybe only an hour or two and then eventually this just kind of leads to the point where it's a little bit more like cocaine like you got 30 40 minutes and then you can kind of feel it's not quite as there and you should really stop long before then i would say a single redose much like mdma is probably about as far as you want to push it tell that to you know 20 something year old adam right now there is one strange thing that happens on this drug and it's actually it's very similar to a thing that happens on mdma or ecstasy as well and it, it is this two or three hours in where instead of the experience having a like a natural arc to it where you come up and then you have a peak and then you slowly glide back down to towards sobriety instead of that happening there were occasions certain occasions where you would have this instant overwhelming rush of sobriety and sometimes this would happen because of your thoughts it's like you would crack out of the flow state that was this drug experience instantly because of, of something you thought about like for example you thought about the fact that this experience was going to be ending soon and there was no more for you to take and that thought would crack you into sobriety that was very peculiar and it's pretty uncomfortable because you go from this crazy like drug-induced frame of mind which I would describe as like, like a flow state kind of feeling to completely removed from that feeling like like weirdly sober instantly and it was very uncomfortable it wasn't necessarily uh, a feeling of anxiety it was more a feeling of like deep disappointment like all your joy just got evaporated out of the room it was it wasn't comfortable now the weird reality is if you take more that feeling goes away but the first several times this happened to me i had the in hindsight probably a very wise intuition to say no if i'm feeling this way from this drug and i take more my experience with cocaine tells me that i will only be signing up for a worse version of this later and sometimes that is the case but that's one of the beautiful things about methylone is that really the come downs were never that bad it was more often than not a smooth glide back down to sobriety with no residual anxiety certainly you would feel tired you would feel exhausted you would feel maybe some small sense of disappointment in that by comparison the way I feel now is quite different from how I felt a few hours ago but it doesn't even compare to a cocaine come down sometimes an MDMA come down a pure MDMA come down can be quite brutal but methylone was was for the most part really really smooth a huge majority of the time there was no come down which which is you know nice and not something you necessarily deserve after doing multiple redoses of you know an empathogen or or a super stimulant like methamphetamine right you don't really deserve a smooth come down it should be brutal that's how it is most of the time but not with methylone oftentimes very very smooth now one of the really fun things that we did uh there's this group of friends and i did we had a thing called peer review sunday and admittedly you know, it's hard It's hard to get a group of people on the same page to do a thing when everybody's on this drug. It is so, man, it's like everybody is on their own mission. 
And I say mission and not journey, because it's not like, like I could see psychedelics being that way, where if you have a whole group of people doing you know, mushrooms, for example, kind of hard to get everybody on the same page because they're on their own psychedelic journey that might have nothing, or different varying experiences. But with methylone, it was a lot more like a mission. Like everybody had like some really in, important thing that they were hyper-focused on, some sort of like, like particular intention that had like grabbed them that night. And it could be something as silly as like, I want to get this picture. That's what one person's focused on. Another person is really wants to go to this bar and talk to these people. Another person is like totally consumed in this one conversation that they're having. And it's scattered. So like trying to organize people, even like, God, there were times where we were like, okay, let's all get in the car and go here. And that takes an hour. It takes an hour to get everybody in the car because you go to this person and say, hey, we're leaving in five minutes, cool? They say, no problem. And you go to another person, we're leaving in five minutes, cool, no problem. And you make your rounds and you say that to five people and then you realize that no one has met you at the car. No one even, they don't even remember that you said that. And if they do, they might think that it's been two minutes because time is very tough to keep track of. So like, you, <laughs> there were many times I can remember specifically where somebody would say, hey, can you come inside for just a minute? And I'll say, no problem, I'll be there in a second. And they would come back an hour later and be like, hey, dude, were you gonna come in here? And I'm like, yeah, you just, and they were like, dude, you've been talking for an hour. You've been here for an hour having this conversation with this person, and it felt like 30 seconds. Like, you, you have a very poor sense of time. And it leads to this kind of scrambled social nature of the events, right? Which is very fun, but goddamn, is it hard to get stuff done um, in a group setting, at least. So, there were... There, there was this one particular thing that we ended up doing, and we had some success with it. We did it more than once. We called it Peer Review Sunday, where me and all of my roommates at the time and several other friends that were in our friends group and over at this house very often, we would sit in a circle on our back porch, and we would just sit around this glass table, and we would take turns giving feedback to people in the group. And it was sort of like a pick and choose style. Anybody could go in any order and say anything to anyone. But like, I would say, I would pick one friend out of the group and say, hey man, this week, you did, you did the dishes. And some of those dishes were mine. And I fucking appreciate that, dude, because that shows that you care about me and I know you care about me. And I'm talking, the depth of these conversations was like laughable looking back now. But you really meant it. You really meant it. You, you could even tear up on this drug because of how deep your sense of empathy was. It was a very, very powerful experience in a lot of ways. And so Peer Review Sunday was not only us like complimenting each other and saying all of this lovey shit that we really felt about each other, but it was also an opportunity for feedback because sometimes there were things that would come up, arguments within the friends group that had happened six months ago where someone would say, hey man, do you remember six months ago when you said this thing to me and you kind of made that comment like, man, I want you to know that that hurt my feelings. It made me feel angry. And I kind of held that against you a little bit. And I just wanted to ask like, why did you say that? And the person hearing this would never take it poorly. They were so filled with empathy and, and just fucking love that they would say, man, I'm so sorry that I said that. I had no idea it made you feel that way. How can I how can I make you understand that I was looking at it this way and you know in the future could I do something different? I mean like the healthiest adult behavior you could ever imagine. Like full-blown genuine apologies, um honest attempts to amend your behavior to to 
better live in the presence of other people, right? Like you really care what other people are saying. You care about how they interpret your actions. You want to be a better person. Um, and you're hyper aware of how your, your actions might impact other people. So these conversations were, were genuinely healthy, constructive, positive conversations. It wasn't just, I mean, yes, it was funny. It was very funny. I wished so badly that I had just thought to press record on my phone and set it in the middle of the table. I would kill to have one of these conversations recorded. You don't really have the, the insight to do that at the time, nor do you realize how valuable some of these, these stories might be later down the road, right? You don't really know when you're in the, when you're in the good old days, but you know, these were, these were powerful interactions that I had uh, with many, many different friends of mine, and it undoubtedly made our friendship stronger. It also lends credit to the idea that drugs like this, MDMA, methylone, and many of the other weird cousins that are in these, these categories, why they, they can absolutely be used for talk therapy. It shreds so many of the walls that you have in your mind, ones that you don't even realize. It lowers inhibitions from an emotional standpoint, but not a physical standpoint. So it's like alcohol in that it just makes you not give a shit about things that you otherwise would care about deeply, but your physical body is still able to articulate and and even your mind, it's still able to like process a lot of these like higher level emotional concepts. So you're able to really put in the work while you're on the drug, right? Because you could certainly say that about alcohol. Have a few drinks and you might loosen up a little bit and have a better conversation. But there's a window where that doesn't really work anymore. Now you're just shit-faced and you're not really gonna remember this conversation. You might say things that you don't truly mean. It gets very muddy. Alcohol would be a, a very poor choice of, of a drug to take before you go into a therapy session. But something like methylone, man, it, it there's a tremendous value there, man. I could just imagine certain people having revolutionary discussions and emotional epiphanies and breakthroughs uh, from this drug. I know I, I certainly did. Um, even if it was nothing more than the connectivity I experienced with my friends, that was powerful, moving, and had long-lasting effects. It's not like you forget that conversation, right? And even when you're off of the drug, you can still completely connect to that person that you were. You have now been introduced to the most confident version of you that has ever existed on a chemical level. You know, you've never been that confident before. And once you're introduced to that person, this version of you, and you have an experience being that person, you realize that that was still you. Yes, your neurotransmitters were, you know, <laughs> very much like being manipulated, but at the same time, it was still you. It was still a version of you that was very real in that moment. And having gone through that experience, you can connect to that person long after the experience lasted. And so, in that way, it's very similar to, to psychedelics. You know, it creates a, a residual effect that does stick with you long after the experience itself. So now let me try to explain to you the part of this drug that made me want to write a book. Now I'm gonna be very careful here because what I'm going to say sounds too good to be true. It sounds like something that could influence somebody to go take this drug and that's not where I'm coming from. I don't encourage anyone to take a drug at all. That's not my recommendation. It is your personal decision and you should do all of your own personal research. This podcast is merely me sharing my experiences. But what I'm about to say will more than likely pique your interest. And I say that knowing that I'm talking to a lot of musicians. This drug changed the way that I play music forever. Forever. It increased my skill level. Well, let me say this a smarter way. So 
when you play music on methalone, you, if you have the ability to conceptualize something that you want to play. So let's say, for example, I'm aware that we're still probably like 75% drummers listening to this podcast um, because that's where my most of my fans come from or you know, early followers of this podcast are very likely still a majority drummers. So if you have a groove or a fill that you can hear, you have it memorized, it's in your mind and you have a general concept of what it sounds like. Normally the way that works is that in order to execute that pattern, you have to go through a tremendous amount of practice to work out the muscle memory, to train your ears to hear it perfectly, and ultimately to execute this thing on the drums, you know, requires a lot of work. But the only thing that you need to successfully play that groove or that fill is the knowledge of the groove or the fill. When you're on methalone, the execution is like built in. You just, if you believe you can play it, you can play it. That's what happens. I, I don't know how else to say it. Not, it's not that you learn other things. The drug itself doesn't come with any rhythmic knowledge necessarily, but it's as though your musical maturity, your ability to execute and to freely speak and express the rhythmic ideas in your mind, is like it's fast forwarded almost, I would say five years. That's the number that comes to mind. How will you play drums five years from now? Well, you're probably gonna be a lot cleaner, a lot more articulate, you're gonna have a better flow, your ideas are gonna match more seamlessly, your groove is gonna be deeper, your pocket sits in a better position, uh, your dynamics have more peaks and valleys to them, the quiet notes have a, a specific texture and a feeling, the louder notes have a more aggressive cut, and you're able to manipulate a lot of these dynamic textures. All of that just fucking happens, it just happens. Now what I realized on this drug when playing music Keep in mind, this wasn't just me. This was my guitarist friends, other drummer friends, uh, friends that played bass, friends that sang. All of us, all of us had this experience where it was like your musical maturity just, just becomes advanced. It's fucking amazing, absolutely amazing. Now what I realized though, was that you can take it and just jam. Most of the time, that's what ended up happening anyway. You know, it, a 12 hour jam session was very common. And I mean, the guys playing guitar would play until their blisters on their fingers ripped open and you really don't even care. Same with drums. I would play until blisters on my hands ripped open. New blisters, like in the center of my palm, weird places, would rip open. Don't care, don't feel it. I mean, you were that deep into the experience that is playing music, which is like a drug in of itself, and then combined with methalone, you just get absolutely lost, absolutely lost in the experience. Now, one thing that I, that I realized here early on was that it's not just jamming. If you practice, if you truly try to work on something that you don't know how to play, like you don't even really have the concept, man, the, the speed at which you get better is unbelievable. I would say somewhere in the ballpark of 10x what you're used to. An hour of practice is equivalent to 10 hours of practice when on methalone. And this is why I'm, I'm cautious in saying this, man. I, that sounds too good to be true. That sounds fake. That sounds like, by me just saying that, I would imagine every musician listening is very interested. Hold on a second. What the fuck did you just say? You know, 10 times more efficient practice. You know, it's, it's truly hard to explain how much of an impact that had on my playing. And so in the year that I took this drug, 
you know, there were, I would say maybe between 10 and 20 times where I took it alone and practiced. And those 10 or 20 practice sessions advanced my playing probably by three years. It's like getting in a time machine. That's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. And you you do retain a whole lot of it. Not everything. You're also a little, your perception of your own playing is also skewed. So like you might feel like you're doing something amazing and then, you know, in sobriety later, you're like, well, that actually wasn't that crazy of a thing. I was just really feeling it at the time. There's a little bit of that. But for the most part, it's it's like, just objective that you just play music totally different when on this drug. There were times, man, this <laughs> this is a brutal one. I actually didn't think about this or whether or not I was going to say it, but fuck it, all in. It's in the name of the podcast. I have I have had orgasms while playing drums on this drug, not touching my dick, obviously. Not related to sex. No thoughts of that. But like that overwhelming, that that back of the neck tingle, that, that pop of adrenaline, pop of serotonin, whatever that musical high is that a lot of us have spent our whole lives chasing, right? Whatever that fucking feeling is, double that up, triple that up, 10x, right? That's the feeling that you get. It's it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Man, and this was one of the reasons that that I wanted to write to write a book about this. I wanted to title it something in the ballpark of like I don't know, hacking the music industry or like how I like cheated at music in a way. I mean, I guess it's not really like that because if you look at these as like PEDs, like performance enhancing drugs, well, you could certainly pitch that argument for caffeine. You could pitch that argument for weed, for any type of stimulant that anyone's ever taken. You know, James Brown did his whole career on blow, so he was on PEDs the whole time. Right? You know, it's it's a complicated way to look at it. I certainly don't perceive it as cheating, but like when I'm thinking about like a theme for what this book would have been, it's something along those lines. How this felt like like a hack, like I jumped forward in time by several years and I was able to acquire skills that didn't feel earned. They didn't feel earned. It felt free. And of course, this leads me into this this more complex belief system about, about what it is to play and perform music. And I wonder what the inside of the mind of some of the best musicians that have ever lived, I wonder what the inside of their mind looked like. And I wonder if some of their touch, feel, groove, and ultimately their execution of certain musical works was closely related to some sort of like a belief that they had, a confidence that they had, some sort of physiological thing happening that I was able to experience through the use of methalone. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that your confidence level certainly affects musical performance. If you're very nervous you know, and, and objectively not confident in how you feel about a certain musical performance, well, that will affect your performance, certainly. And if you were very, very, very confident and you were feeling it and in a good mood and had high levels of serotonin and dopamine just from life itself, then you would, you would probably have a better performance. So I really don't know what to do with this information. I, I, I'm not sure. 
I'm, I'm not sure I can recommend that anybody take this drug merely because I don't know who I'm speaking to, right? I don't know you personally. I don't know if you have any history of mental health. This is quite literally, this is all you shit. You've got to think about this. Do not take it from me. But I can tell you that my experience on it was a very powerful one and it had a lasting, permanent impact on my entire music career. To this day, I accredit a good amount of my musical skill set to to methalone, and not specifically as though my skills came from the drug, but rather the drug created an environment that was very conducive to my musical growth, to my musical maturity. And I would really liken this to something like steroids, you know, like anabolic steroids that a bodybuilder would take. You know, you can just you can just take steroids all the time, and that has nothing to do with you becoming muscular. It merely creates a a physical environment, like a chemical environment, in which you can thrive if you still do the work. And so methalone is a little bit closer to that. It doesn't just make you a good musician. It's not free rhythmic knowledge from the universe. That would be pretty dope. And psychedelics may have something to say about that, but that, that's certainly not what methalone is. It's merely like a chemical environment that creates this platform on which you can thrive. And things like practicing music become efficient to a degree that's very hard to explain. So I've got two more stories for you. And one of them is this, this is when things went wrong. Now, personally for me, getting methalone of all these experiences, you know, I didn't really have any overwhelmingly negative experiences. Um, from from methalone, there were times when that that rush of sobriety felt very uncomfortable. There were times when I had, let's say, stayed up a whole lot later than I said I was going to stay up. Comes with a certain amount of guilt. You know, you feel kind of like you, you feel like a piece of shit. Like you, you know, there's that sort of stuff. But that comes with the territory of doing heavy drugs like this. My my singular negative experience was from one night where we did not get methalone. We got some fucked up version of bath salts. Now what was very scary is that this looked and tasted exactly like methalone. There was no difference that we could really discern. The the powders, the crystal, it looked exactly the same. But this was not methalone. It was some version of a bath salt. And man, it was a it was a weird bad experience. So let me tell you about that one. So the come up of this drug was was relatively similar. You, you kind of felt the same initially. You felt it come on, felt a sense of happiness. But we all knew that something was different because we were planning on going downtown. And before we went downtown, the plan was to go into the music room that we had set up there and jam a little bit before we, before we uh, went downtown. And we all sucked at playing music. I mean bad, sloppy, off, like your physical execution was trash, your feel was trash, your ideas were trash. Like you still wanted to play. It sounded like something you want to do, but like none of this is believable. I don't buy any of the notes that I'm putting out. I don't buy anything that someone else is saying. We all felt the same way. Like why are we like horrible at this? Like this is just sloppy, sloppy, bad playing. So we kind of had this this idea that perhaps this wasn't what we were used to, but it had some similarities. Then we begin to realize like on the car ride and as we got out of the car and are walking to wherever we're going, that your speech is affected. You can't talk right. Like you go to say words and they come like mumbled. Like in my head it sounded fine, but like my mouth doesn't work 
right? It's like that. It's like being, like you have a, a somewhat of a clear head, but your body is drunk. That's kind of what it felt like. Very, very confusing to have those two things separated where my thoughts are here, but my body doesn't want to come with me. And I remember specifically we were looking for some bar or a club that had a specific name, and I went up to a bouncer. And I remember this guy was, God, like 6'6", 350, like a huge dude. And I went up to him, and all I was trying to ask was, where is this bar? And it came out like, like no discernible words. And I can hear myself saying this and being like, there's no way he understood that. There's no way this guy fucking heard a word of, like, I didn't say any words. That was just a bunch of mouth noises. And the guy looks at me, he goes, bro, what the fuck did you just say? So I'm like, oh man, I was so embarrassed. So I had never experienced this once in my life. Probably the only time in my life that I have like a total inability to say words. And the guy just, I remember specifically, he was just like, bro, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Which is the only thing to say in that scenario. I don't blame him, man. So uh, I was just like, yep, no problem. You know, whatever, I mumbled. And uh, we just kind of kept walking. But that was a very, very rough night. And, and it wasn't rough in that it was scary. It wasn't like, I mean, objectively, you have to call that a bad experience. That was definitely not a good experience. Never wanted to do it again. We all kind of had the same feeling of like, what in the fuck is this drug that we're like, this sucks. Like, um, But, you know, it came with euphoria and it came, you wanted to have conversations. Like there were positive feelings to it, but all of the ability to execute that was bad. And so that particular experience was one of the things that got me interested in starting to test the drugs themselves. Because I kind of realized like, man, you can get so easily fooled by these like crystals and powders. Like they all look kind of similar, you know? And so that was my one and only like very poor experience where I'm sure I killed some brain cells and um, that was my own fault. That was a hard learned lesson. I took a drug without testing it and that's something that I would never ever do now. Now this final story I have for you is sort of to explain what happened that made everyone in the group sort of stop at the same time. And effectively what happened is that the drug evaporated from our social group. It just disappeared. And the reason that happened was quite scary. There's a reason I waited almost 10 years to tell a story like this because this was about the closest I've ever been to I mean, what what potentially could have been like severe legal trouble, though I have no reason to think um, that that I necessarily would have gone to jail or been caught with something like that. I was not involved in the sale or distribution of this drug at all. It was purely personal recreation for me. However, within our friends group, there was one particular guy who was involved in selling it, and he was sort of the, the connection that we all had. He wasn't he didn't live with us in this house, and you know, it was somewhat external to the friends group. He had many other friends groups as well, but you know, we we did know him, and he was over relatively often. And this guy was friends with the guy who placed the order for this drug from China off of the Silk Road. Now, the Silk Road was a like a Tor browser black market website that existed quite a while ago until the um, the founder of that website went to jail um, for. He got set up for like, he tried to try to do a hit on somebody and the entire Silk Road got shut down. But for a while in the early 2000s, Silk Road was basically a way to order all sorts of wild shit online, ranging from, dude, 
any guns you could think of, any amounts of any drugs that you could think of, to child pornography, to children. I mean, it's real black web shit. I never personally spent any time on Silk Road. I never placed an order on Silk Road. But we were one person removed from a guy who did. And that's a very, 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 very serious federal crime to order any drug from another country, um, let alone all the other things that you could order on, on the black web. So this guy who placed the orders took my friend, the guy that we did know, took him to the post office one day to pick up a package, an international package which contained, if I'm remembering this right, somewhere in the ballpark of 16 kilos of methylone. So somebody's going to prison for a very, very long time. I found out all of this after the fact when the story was told to me. I had nothing to do with this actual story. But so my buddy gets brought by this guy who actually placed the order um, to the post office. And for one reason or another, he asked my friend to go in and pick up the package. I don't know why that would have been the case unless he had a sneaking suspicion that something was going on. So my buddy goes in to pick up a package that is not his. It's not addressed to him. It's not under his name. But they're both... I mean, these guys were both heavy, heavy drug users. You know, they're both high, I, I imagine. And so my buddy goes in there, asks for a package under the name of this one guy who's not him. And the girl working at the post office says, let me see your ID. And so he gives her the ID and then he signs for the package and he signs his own name, which doesn't match the, the, the package, right? The package is addressed to a different person under a different name. But she gives him the package anyway. And he had this odd feeling of like, wait a minute, wasn't I supposed to sign the other guy's name? Like, how am I getting this package? And as he's turning around to leave, he gets swarmed by the DEA. The entire thing was a sting. He gets brought into a back office. Um, and apparently they had been looking at the main guy that placed the order. They had been looking at him for quite a while. And they knew not only him, but they knew many, many other names of people that were in his network, apparently, including my buddy that got brought into this back room. And he was there for four hours, questioned. But what's interesting is they ended up having to let him go because the girl working at the front of the post office made a mistake by giving him a package that she was legally not allowed to give him. He can't take possession of a package that wasn't his, right? So they kind of knew that none of this is gonna hold up. We can't get him on any version of a possession charge because you know, he wasn't really supposed to take possession. It was like an error of a government employee. So I would imagine you would be in some sort of entrapment territory at that point, something like that. Anyway, because of that technicality, whatever it ended up being, he uh, he got let go. And, you know, later when we met up with this guy and he was telling us this story, he had the business cards of the DEA agents, which is how I know that this was not, not a made up story. And the guy who had, was originally placing the orders off of Silk Road was quite literally never to be seen again. Him personally, I never met that guy, but he disappeared off of the face of the planet. I imagine he went into hiding. If he was smart, he's probably in Mexico. Well, if you're smart, you're probably not ordering 16 kilos of <laughs> fucking methalone from China off of the internet. But yeah, that guy disappeared. He got in no trouble, as far as I know. And um, my buddy got in no trouble at all because of that weird technicality with the package. But after that, we were all quite scared, as we should have been. Who the fuck wants to brush up with the DEA? This is not a game. This is not a joke. Nor is, nor are any of us so married to this experience that we would be willing to risk something like going to jail or going to prison. That, that really wasn't, uh, you know, if, if that was a real pending threat, I'm out. I'm not, I'm, I'm not interested in that. 
And so I tell this story many, 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 many years removed from this experience, but ultimately that was the reason that we all sort of said like, you know, are we good? I'm good. Are you good? I'm good. Yeah. And we all just sort of let it go. Now, there was one friend in the group who continued to get it from somewhere, and he actually had a problem with abuse. He abused it, man. He abused it a lot. And I wouldn't, I don't know if I would use the word addiction because physically it's not very addictive, but like just more of like a mental addiction in the way that you might get addicted to pot, where when you're just used to being in this state, not being in this state can sometimes get a little bit uncomfortable. And so you just have this like permanent magnetism towards being high off of a certain drug. And of everyone in our friends group, that happened to one person. And he had some pretty severe like emotional and behavioral issues for quite a while. Um, though I'm not friends with him anymore, I do know through social media and stuff, not an issue anymore. He certainly straightened himself out over time. But for the most part, none of us had a problem dropping this drug. We all just sort of said, well, it's gone and maybe it'll be back one day and, and that's, uh, that'll be our experience with methylone. And to be totally honest, I have never seen that drug since. Never, ever seen it. Now, the drug itself got popular in 2000, well, early 2000s-ish, but it was officially scheduled in 2011 along with several, several other uh, variations like weird cousins of MDMA, many of which are in the like bath salt type category. But I want you to know that this drug is is very, very unique among all of those other drugs. It's, it's a special drug. It's one that I'm deeply passionate about because of the impact that it had on me, not only emotionally, not only with, with the context of my friends and my relationships, but musically as well. This drug has played such a huge role in my music career. So I, it just feels only appropriate that I, that I talk openly and honestly about what this drug did for me. Now, if you're gonna research this drug and look up anything about it at all, you should know that it goes by several different names. The first of which is a bullshit name, and that's Molly. Molly can mean a hundred different things. It's a slang term that means absolutely nothing. So don't Google Molly. You'll be reading about all sorts of weird shit. The primary name that it goes under is, is methylone, but also BK-MDMA is another name that you'll see for it a lot. So you can Google BK-MDMA, and you'll find some information there. Another street name that's used is M1. M1 is a popular name as well. Uh, but this drug is in a very specific category of its own. It's a drug that means a lot to me. Would I ever do it again? That's an interesting question. I would have to have test kits appropriate for it to make sure that's what it was, because I would be quite fearful that I might run into another bath salt variation that I'm not interested in taking at all. So if I knew it was methylone, maybe, maybe, under the right circumstances. It's been so long since I've done a drug even in that category that I really don't know. I really don't know. I might do MDMA sooner, sooner than methylone. It just feels quite foreign to me now. But it's an amazing drug, and um, I thought it warranted a podcast. Maybe a book one day, but I don't know. It's been so long. I feel like a podcast was a little more appropriate. So that's all I got for you in this one, guys. I really appreciate it. As always, you know, one of the best ways to support this podcast if you're on YouTube is just to leave a comment. That certainly helps with the algorithms. But also, you know, sharing this podcast. If you're not comfortable sharing this podcast openly and publicly, text it to a friend. It's one of my favorite ways to share podcasts and podcast content with people is to pick a specific person and say, hey, man, this podcast, this conversation, this topic reminded me of you. I thought you'd really enjoy it. I think it's a powerful way to share information. And if you want to do that with anybody of yours, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. Much. Remember, you can call the hotline or text the hotline if you got any questions for future episodes. And I hope to be back with um, one of two guests I have in mind on the next episode. So I will let you know when they're uh, here in studio, and we'll we'll keep it moving. Thanks for watching, guys. This has been All In with Adam, episode twelve. Love you, and I will see you next week. Bye.